Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. Before we begin today's show, I want to remind you that listeners of this podcast can attend Camp Alphaville on July 1st at a discount. Camp Alphaville is the Financial Times Alphaville team's annual festival of wonkiness and themes from economics and finance. It is three parts intellectual, two parts outdoorsy fun and games, and one part boozy summer decadence. If you want to attend and use the special discount for Alpha Chat listeners, go to ft.com forward slash finance festival. And the marketing code you should use is, in all caps, secret alpha chat. It's one word. Again, ft.com forward slash finance festival. And the code is secret alpha chat. Finally, I want to remind you that we are soon going to merge our long form podcast, Alpha Chatterbox, with this one, Alpha Chat. That's going to happen within a couple of weeks, and you'll notice in the archives, a lot of those older Alpha Chatterbox episodes will be in your feed. And that's all the housekeeping for this episode. Let's get on with today's show. My co-host Shannon Bond is on maternity leave, and this week we have two guest hosts. First, I'm joined for the third straight week. By Mary Childs. Mary, how are you? I'm great. Thank have, you. Have you figured out what the uh, primary qualification is for being a podcast co-host? No, but I'm hoping I get a prize for having done three in a row. And I'm pretty sure my qualification appears to be availability. And no, that's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> it's And having written something. It, that's ridiculous. Uh, what I was going to say was actually maybe less complimentary. It's just a willingness to completely talk out of your ass. That's right? probably accurate. Yes. Yeah. In your case, you do it very articulately. You've Thank been awesome. You. Our other guest is not just a guest to this podcast, but a guest to the FT's offices, Chris Arnod. He's a photojournalist and a former trader at City. Chris, how are you? You're you're a guest guest host. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Twice the guest. <laughs> I hope I don't talk on my ass. Uh, that's, <laughs> no, that's, that's kind of what we okay. expect you to do here. In terms of your background, uh, tell us a little something about yourself. Uh, you used to be on Wall Street, uh, and then you became a photojournalist. Yeah, I was on Wall Street for 20 years. I started as a bond trader in Solomon Brothers in 1993, and I left uh, after it had become city in 2012. In 2012. Right. You stuck around for a few years after the crisis. You were there for the bloodshed, the I was, metaphorical bloodshed, I, was, I, should I say. was, um, right. and was partially why I changed my mind about getting out of the industry. I had generally felt that at that prior to that point, I would say what we were doing, what I was doing was relatively benign, wasn't great, wasn't negative. But after the crisis, I started thinking that maybe what I was doing as a career wasn't necessarily benign and uh, I was looking for something else to do. Okay. We were definitely going to talk about that. I'm really looking forward to it. But let me just introduce today's topics. First of all, uh, Chris just published in The Guardian uh, this really moving and beautifully rendered and reported piece about McDonald's. Not McDonald's, the company, the corporate entity, how much money they're making or even how many franchises they have, but about how it serves as a community center in a lot of unexpected places. 
Second, we're going to talk about the two Americas. Mary has really strong opinions about this, I think. I don't know. I do. I'm excited I'm just, to find out. <laughs> <laughs> just, I needed something to tease it with. Uh, the two Americas, do we break it down by income, by education, by race, by class? How should we talk about it? Uh, and then finally, we're going to talk about how we, not the three of us necessarily, but how society should talk about people who work in finance as Chris used to, as I did very, very briefly, and as Mary has never done. Literally never. <laughs> not for well a minute. Done, Thank you. Yes, nicely, <laughs> nicely avoided. I have no credibility. This is going to be a, a great show, so let's get on with it. Chris, let's start by talking about McDonald's. Tell us uh, what the theme of your piece was uh, and how you uh, arrived at this realization. Um, my, my theme of the piece was basically McDonald's, um, the franchises, the individual franchises, and many communities serve as community centers, ad hoc community centers. Um, and it happens organically. I started noticing it across the country. I, I, I write about poverty and addiction. Um, and for the last five years, I've been driving around the country and I've put on 200,000 miles on my car. And part of my work with addiction brings me a lot of the times in McDonald's because that's where addicts hang out during the day. When you say addiction, you mean uh, to drugs primarily, to drugs, alcohol? Uh, heroin, to heroin. heroin, heroin primarily. But uh, most of my work was in the Bronx with heroin addicts. But I also have been in pretty much every town in the United States that people don't go to, um, you know, places that people generally have forgotten about. And they all have a McDonald's, and in the McDonald's um, is where most of the um, people, the homeless people, will hang out during the day. They do that because you can charge your phone there. You can do that because there's clean bathrooms. And they do that by and large because McDonald's leaves them alone, and they have a safe space. In addition, I started finding myself going to the McDonald's for the same reason other people went, which it was a nice location to talk to people. And so if I was spending time in uh, Natchitoches, Louisiana, where I was just recently, it's a town of 110,000 people. It's in rural Louisiana, um, and it's 50% African-American, 50% white. It's poor. Um, but like in every other McDonald's, in Nagatis, at every, every morning, there is a group of individuals, maybe 10 to 30, who get together and have coffee and then chat. Um, and I saw this across the entire country. There are these old men clubs, they call them. Some of them call them the old men clubs. The ones in Nagatis called themselves the Romeo Club, retired old men eating out. My piece was basically about how this happens across the country, and um, they've become a reflection in many cases of the community that they are located in. So people think of McDonald's as saying, well, they're all the same. That is true on the outside, but if you put me in a McDonald's in any place in the country, I can tell you exactly where I am by just looking around me. They end up becoming very much part of the community and reflecting the nature of the community. Does McDonald's encourage this? It's unclear if they have a corporate policy about this, but they have they've generally erred in that side, so they don't kick people out. Sometimes there'll be a sign saying if you leave here more more than thirty minutes, but I've never seen anybody kicked out. And that includes people who, you know, a lot of places would want to kick out, people who don't smell good, people who um clearly are in distress. Um, but it's one of the few places where they can find some normalcy. Um, and really connect with the rest of the community. Um, and I, I mean, I found it to be very interesting for multiple reasons, but one is, to me, that struck me the most was how organic it was. It just happens spontaneously across the country. And in that sense, for me, it's a sign about how, you know, we've all talked about how the world has become kind of uniform and kind of lacking in any place. Um, but if you give people a world of franchises, they'll end up being social in a world of franchises. Um, you know, people have a great desire to socialize. 
Um, and in a world in which McDonald's is the only thing, they'll do it in McDonald's. Can you give us a couple of examples of uh, some of the uh, individual people that you uh, met and spoke to while you were in these McDonald's? I mean, there's there's thousands I can talk about. But, um, you know, Betty Ryder, who I wrote about in the piece, um, as she told me, she has a tendency to get caught shoplifting. <laughs> um, you know, she would come in every day at nine. Um, I like how that's phrased, by yes. the way. I have a tendency to get caught shoplifting. <laughs> you know, it's a very passive-voiced uh, description. I, I love how people um, use euphemisms, self-euphemisms. Um, it's a wonderful way of trying to build up um, pride in themselves, and it's, it's really wonderful. Um, you can piece I piece together her story from her, her stories. Um, she lives in a half, halfway house that allows her to be there but doesn't allow her to be there during the day. So from 8 in the morning to 8 at night, she has to be out. And so she goes to McDonald's. She arrives every day with a book and her cigarettes, and she sits at the table, gets a coffee, puts in six sugars, and ends up, you know, talking to whoever. And she ends up being friends with a lot of the workers too. And there's also something I didn't write about is how the bonds form between the people who work there and the people who come. Uh, and the people who work there are very much similar from the community as well. So Betty was a bit of this character who would show up every day. And, you know, I was there for a week in Nagatus and she ended up becoming my friend and she would look forward to seeing me and talk to me and, you know, just generally... Some days she came in smelling like alcohol, <laughs> you know, other days she didn't. But, um, you know, and she would help out to the degree she could other people who would come in to the McDonald's with similar problems. What I loved about this piece was that it goes against like the instinctive reaction to hearing about a McDonald's um, from those of us like coastal elite types, mm -hmm. right? Because when I think of McDonald's, I think, well, God, like I'll I'll go in there for to satisfy a craving every once in a while, but usually I have what I think would be described fairly as a typically snobbish attitude towards it. And I loved how revealing this was about how well, actually McDonald's plays a much different role outside of these big cities. Well, within the cities as well, if you go into the like I the, the where I really started noticing it was in the Bronx, where. Um, where, you know... It, outside of Manhattan. Then. Yes, outside of Manhattan. <laughs> and San Francisco. Well, I mean, where in general, it, it, it really is, you know, I was just in one this morning. I was just the one in Hunts Point. And, you know, I see the same characters there I saw three years ago, the same people who are using it, you know, as a way to kind of escape the outdoors for a little bit and, and to make connections. And they make connections with each other. Mm -hmm. I want to ask a little bit about uh, the nature of your work in general. You teased earlier uh, that you left finance uh, and you became a journalist, both a photographer and occasionally a writer, but you didn't like go do sweeping travel landscapes or whatever. Uh, you chose to study, um, study is the wrong word, but you chose to cover communities of uh, addicts and prostitutes um, and the poor and underprivileged uh, in parts of the country that don't get a lot of journalistic coverage. Uh, Why did you make that choice? You know, I, I really don't know. Um, I, I think there was there was this two year period starting in 2010 where I went to the Bronx and I started um, becoming friends with uh, prostitutes and uh, addicts. While you were up. still at City, yeah, while I was still at City. So there was this really absurd two years where during the day I would come in and, and trade, and at night I would go hang out in crack houses. And one of them had to give, and I chose. I just realized I enjoyed being around. Um, people living on the streets more than I enjoyed being around traders. Um, that's not to say I don't get along with traders, but that's just where I felt more comfortable. And I think, you know, I can spin it political saying that 
we all like to present ourselves in the best light. And if you have a lot of money, you have a lot of resources to do that. You have PR departments. You can get photos taken of the way you want your photo taken. Um, people on the streets don't have that. And so what I wanted to attempt to do was provide their story, both through photos and words, in a way that was respectful of the way they wanted to be portrayed. Because we all have that right. Um, if we have money, we, we allow ourselves to be portrayed in the best possible way. Can I ask the story of how you first met uh, some of the characters that you've come to befriend uh, in these crack houses? And I mean, on the I always always went for long walks when I worked on Wall Street. I mean, very long walks. I, I did what was called terminus walks. I'd go to the end of the subway and walk home. Um, and at some point, I didn't know Bronx. Um, I knew Brooklyn. I knew Manhattan. I knew Queens. I knew Staten Island. And it was basically during the middle of the crisis uh, to relieve the stress. Um, I started walking in the Bronx, and I think somebody said when I came in I, to work one day, I said I was walking in the Bronx, and somebody said, "Whatever you do, don't go to Hunts Point because it's the most dangerous and it's the poorest place." I'm like, "Well, okay, I'm going to go to Hunts Point. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> not- <laughs> if you tell me not to do it, I'll do it." And I started going to Hunts Point, and um, Hunts Point is New York's poorest. It, it, I think, on many measures, it's the poorest congressional district in the United States. Um, it's the most dangerous. Um, it has fifty thousand people living, and it's kind of a like a lick of tongue. It's like a like a tongue sticking out into, uh, into the um, Long Island Sound off of Bronx. And it, I always say it's like a gated community, but gated in the wrong way. It's kind of cut off from the rest of the Bronx, and it's where New York puts things it doesn't want. So there's a lot of garbage dumps. There's a lot of um, heavy industry, um, and the people there have it pretty bad. Um, the average family income, I think, is twenty thousand dollars. And I started going there and just walking around and just started talking to people. And I started going more and more and more and kept going back and kept going back. And eventually, Takesha, who I write about a lot, who started started um, prostituting at the age of 13, um, saw me and started talking to me. And we sp- spoke and I started ta- talking about asking her about her story and she told me about her life. And um, I just got very drawn in. Um, by her, by her story, and by her openness, which was very different from what I was seeing on Wall Street, which was much more, you know, there was, we on Wall Street, including myself, like to portray ourselves, you know, don't reveal all. And I remember when I asked Takesha, um, whenever I interview somebody, I always ask him, like, what's one sentence to describe yourself? And she said, um, her sentence was, as what I am. I'm a prostitute. I'm a, I'm, I'm a mother of six, and I'm a child of God, and that that really struck me. That kind of openness. Um, and I'm still friends with her today. You know, five six years later. And she was she essentially served as like your entry point uh, into um, getting to large, know. Yeah, she uh, she um, she vouched for me. You know, she when when people you know thought I was a police, she said no 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 he's not a police. Um, she she provided me um, as a guide basically. And in, in, in exchange, um, you know, I was writing her story and photographing her in a way that she wanted done. Uh, one last question about uh, the McDonald's piece. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm wondering if you think that McDonald's ended up being a de facto community center in part because there is a shortage of places where people can congregate organically. Um, if it's essentially not just because of the cheaper coffee and the cheap food, uh, but because actually there is an absence of necessary places for people to get together. I think I've thought about this a lot, and I think what is ultimately the reason people congregate in McDonald's is there's no judgment there. 
they don't judge. Um, nonprofits, um, all these places that are well-intentioned, they come with a lot of rules. You know, I want you to eat healthy. Um, and there's a lot of social stigma there. You, you know, you feel when they when someone approaches a nonprofit, they feel very much like they're an outsider coming to get help. Um, whereas when you go to McDonald's, you're just really going as yourself and you can be yourself. You don't have to pretend to want to be a vegetarian. You don't have to pretend to, to have any of these things that we think as as admirable. And when you go to McDonald's, there's no judgment there. You just go, you sit and people leave you alone. The people, you know, the authorities, as it were, um, and you can form bonds on an equal playing field. It was a very moving story, and we will absolutely post a link to go with the show notes on Alphaville. But let's go to uh, the next topic, which is certainly related. The two Americas, uh, Chris, this is something that you have, um, uh, you know, shared your opinion on, uh, especially via Twitter quite a bit. Uh, you have a theory that um, when we talk about the two Americas, um, we're really talking about a split in education more than we're talking about a split in income or races. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, two Americas. Um, it's something I say just all the time. Um, again, I put 200,000 miles in my car over five years, um, and it's really hard to describe just how different they are, how different Manhattan is, how different L.A. is, how different uh, – you know, the suburbs of D.C. are from places like Nagadis, from places like Binghamton, New York, from places like Yazoo City, Mississippi. And I always say we sort ourselves now, not just economically, but but culturally and socially. Um, and what's un what's unifying about that sorting is education. And if you look – I think about how we value people. And I mean value as both economic and social. It's by and large, it's a step function. There's a group of people who, and that's true of when you look at um, how people are compensated. In general, if you have a postgraduate degree, you make a lot more than if you don't. Um, but I think it's 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 more than just income; it's social. I think um, I think a Wall Street trader has more in common with a Harvard professor than they do with a forklift or operator in Appalachia. Uh -huh. And it's about what what each person um, sees as important to them. Um, and both sets see very different things as important to them. Over the years, this has gotten worse, right? Like the, the sorting has gotten more and more clean and, and people are less likely to kind of cross-pollinate. Is that the case? Oh, definitely. I think um, there is no, there's no communication between the two. Why is that? Why has it gotten worse? You know, I, I have my theories that are just entirely theories, but I think – I think there's a lot about more mobility. I think there's a lot going on with the internet in terms of um, you can find your own and you can stick with your own. Um, I think it has a lot to do with the economic landscape. We've been um, we've moved on in terms of uh, generally a winner take all mentality. Um, but you know, I think when I was a kid, um, you know, we had a we had an orange juice factory in our town. I'm from Florida. Small small town of had had orange juice factory. Literally, was town cut by railroad tracks. Um, on one side of the road tracks was African Americans. You know, it was very much the classic Southern town. And there was an orange juice factory. The owners of the orange juice factory um, had a lot of money. We all knew that, but they went to the same lousy public school we did. We didn't realize until the '80s that they had a lot of money. That they were in the Forbes 500. But the kids were friends with. They played on the football team. They they were part of the community. It was just. You know, it was just a very different way of approaching having money. Do you think that's perpetuated 
by structural things in our policies or oh, definitely i think on a larger on a larger frame and going back to kind of the mcdonald's things is i think the we've moved to kind of a to emphasize the economic um that we 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 think only policy wise and um it's kind of we moved an uber rational view of the world in which all that really matters is GDP growth, and anything that maximizes GDP growth means it's good. Um, in doing so, we've killed unions. We've done this without thinking about the social impact of this, and a lot of that plays into some of the issues today, like immigration and free trade, which again are positive from a GDP standpoint, but may not be positive from a social standpoint. And so you have what you've created in these communities that as we've moved to a world in which we value only the economic, and both parties do that, um, we've devalued the social. And a lot of people find value through the social. So we've devalued the importance of church. We've devalued the importance of, uh, of uh, family. We devalue the importance of sports. All these things that used to give people meaning. People used to find meaning, th meaning through unions, and they don't anymore. And so what's happened is you've created these communities that it's been a one-two punch. Um, the income inequality, so they haven't gained economically from this because you've left 90% of the people behind of stagnant wages. But more than just stagnant wages, they're also in, insecure economically. The, the certainty of a job just isn't there. It's come with a lot of economic anxiety. So they're more economically anxious. And socially, they've been devalued. What used to give them meaning, we as a culture, as a society, value less. We value religion less. Um, you know, one of the shocking things to me when I when I came to New York City was how I grew up a pretty liberal. I got to New York City and I met people who were pretty liberal who had no, who had a complete utter distaste for religion, um, and that's that kind of shocked me. Uh, as you know, the kind of categorizing these people who were my friends who I grew up with who may not agree with me politically but um, were certainly not cartoon characters like I saw them treated as. So I think you've had these communities that have been just entirely left behind. One kind of simple way to think about this is that if the three of us were to take different jobs, lower paying jobs than the ones we have now, if we were to become bartenders or waiters because that was appealing to us for some reason, or if we went to go work for a nonprofit that just paid a lot less, we would still have more in common with like lawyers and bankers and people like that than we would with a high school grad who went straight from school to go work for like the frackers in North Dakota, even though we would be making less money than the high school grad, right? Our support network, our families, um, our friends, the people we spend time with, uh, they would all still more or less resemble us, right? I want to introduce some uh, facts into this, right? Which I know is sound is super boring, right? Mm -hmm. It's such an intriguing mm -hmm. conversation. conversation. So I'm just going to, it's, it's going to take no time at all though. So here it is. This is from the uh, St. Louis Fed. A quarter of all families in the U.S. have about two thirds of the wealth the remaining three quarters of all families have the third of the wealth that's left. What do the richer families have in common? Uh, they tend to be white, have college degrees, they're older, they have higher incomes, and they make conservative financial choices, just to give you kind of a sense of how this breaks down. So there are various dimensions along which to consider this. I've always found it kind of hard to disentangle um, you know, one from all the others, right? So if you look at education, 
age, race. These things, I think, are all interrelated. And I think there's also just a sort of natural and very powerful path dependence issue here, too, right? Where, like, we still have, it's still hard for someone born to a family of uh, college dropouts or high school dropouts to become a college or a post college grad, right? The educational process has accelerated. And think about what it means to get an education. It means you have to play by all these rules. And I just took my daughter today to take the regents exam. You know, there's all these hoops you have to jump through. Well, it's, what is the regents exam? Uh, the regents exam is uh, the you have to pass statewide tests to get out of high school. Okay. So you have, I think, five of them. She did her global history today. But she had to learn these facts that she'll probably never use in her life. But it was it says much about saying, hey, she knows how to do this process. It's about learning a process. It's learn, about learning a culture. It's about learning – it's saying, okay, I'm going to play the game that they want me to play. And that's what mean, means getting education these days. It's, it's basically the way we sort. So when I was at a bank, Citibank, um, we only hired people from the top schools. And we only did that because we were basically lazy. We, we let them do the sorting. Right. You know, we, we wouldn't we wouldn't go out and try to find the really kid who's who's self made who's too much know, work. That's yeah. too much work. And so, if you're not playing that game, you know, by by tenth grade, you're you're kind of left behind. And so, it's kind of like you know, probably the the communities I've seen that are the most left behind. I mean, the Bronx is fine because, in many senses, because the Bronx has has Manhattan close, and so. A, 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 a kid growing up in Hunts Point who really, really, really has parents who can, you know, who um, can help them will um, will make it out, and they'll make it out because there's all sorts of programs. But a kid growing up in Appalachia is not going to make it out because after a certain point, they're just they're just too far behind. Um, they're just they're not playing the game, and no one's going to respect them because they haven't played the game, and no one's going to look at them. Let's move on to our final topic: How should we, society? How should society? think about uh, people who work in finance. Have we punished them enough? Have we punished them not enough? How should our views on this evolve? Uh, Mary, I'm actually going to start with you on this one. Okay. Uh, You're the one person at the table uh, who hasn't worked in finance, uh, but you've been reporting on people in finance and across the entire spectrum of jobs on Wall Street for quite some time. I guess I'm curious to know if your own opinion of people in finance uh, has shifted over time. Um, yes and no. So I started covering the financial industry sort of right after the crisis. Um, and I don't know if I'm, you know, a journalist because I'm a contrarian or which came first, but the the tone then was certainly like everyone in finance is evil. They have stripped the world of everything. And so my initial tone and also perhaps to survive and actually have people talk to me and do good work. Um, you know, I always sort of have approached it with the idea that, Everybody's a human being. Probably they they want to think of themselves as doing good, at least marginal good for their own small little nest. So, you know, that's always been the way that I saw it. And, and you know, there's certainly bad eggs and there are bad structures and there are bad processes, but that at the micro level, at least, everyone is probably not evil. I've definitely encountered some of those outliers in the years that I've been reporting on this, which has maybe shifted the average of my opinion a little bit. But by outliers, you mean uh, in the bad direction, like in the, the bad the direction, jerks, the arrogant yeah. schmoes. To be the... fair, I have certainly met amazing people who do great works and have, you know, are stand-up people and you know built themselves from nothing, et cetera. There, there are those, and and there are those on the other side of that spectrum as well. So. I don't know. I think that Christine raised an interesting point that um, we've overvalued the economic side of things and overemphasized that. And I think that that 
is certainly reflected in a lot of the priority sets for people. And that lends itself to an additional tone deaf kind of approach when people attempt to interface with the broader world. There's, you know, within Wall Street, your your demonstration of value is your is your value, right? So that's what you put forward. And then and then when you sort of try to reach out beyond that world, that falls on very deaf ears because the world feels cheated and tricked and, you know, what have you done to us? And you, you know, caused this great crisis. So I think that it would be great if that kind of priority set could shift a little bit and people mellow out. I mean, we live in Manhattan, so I don't know that that's necessarily <laughs> likely. <but laughs> Chris is probably chomping at the bit, but I have a quick follow-up for you. Mary. Yes. Uh, have you noticed an increase in humility at all from people uh, on Wall Street? Hmm. Or is that just way too like aggregate everything macro a question to be able to succinctly uh, summarize? Okay, so it is a little bit, too macro, but to break it down a little, I feel like bankers are a little bit more humble in part because their job got less fun and in part because they took such a beating in the public eye. So it's, you know, they're like, okay, yeah, sorry. And that, again, is a gross, um, that's a very fat brush to paint people with. But I think that is sort of what the hedge fund industry is now struggling with um, because you have some high-flying people who have extracted a whole lot of wealth and and there seems to be a mismatch in what they've generated. Um, that, I think, I think they're sort of having that moment now. Okay. Yeah, I I find it kind of hard to uh, discuss this issue with the nuance that I do think it deserves, because I like your point about not demonizing individuals, right? At the same time, there was rampant arrogance in some parts of Wall Street leading up to the crisis and some resilient arrogance even afterwards, <laughs> right? Yeah. Chris, I want, I want to go to you now. Describe, first of all, what, what it is that you did at Citi um, and describe some of the attitudes that you saw uh, leading up to the crisis and then afterwards. Well, I was a bond trader, um, primarily emerging market bonds uh, at Solomon Brothers starting in 1993. Pretty much was a bond trader <laughs> the entire time. Um, in terms of attitude changes, it was a much smaller, humbler, less bouncy industry when I joined. You know, like the the, the rabbit quote about Tigger, um, it uh, – and partly that came from the – it was evolved from the partnerships. Um, being a partnership meant your money was on the line. And so you might have been greedy. You might have been all those things they talk about Wall Street traders being. But ultimately, you were self-regulated. Um, if you blew up, you lost your money. And that created a great sense of self-policing. So um, as as – out of control as the culture might have been, it actually was in control. As the firms got larger and as the firms became effectively um, bureaucracies, it became a game. And public companies. Public companies, yeah. And as Glass-Steagall was, uh, it became just anything goes. And also, there was no fiduciary responsibility to anybody. So traders went from trying to maximize the value of the firm because that was what they owned, to trying to maximize the value of their own money solely, regardless of how it impacted the firm. So you had people arbing the firm, basically. You went from arbing the market, from trying to make money off of the market, to, to, to absurd places where you're trying to basically gain the internal politics to make money off the firm. Um, and people didn't care. Um, it, it reached, you know, it just reached mass conclusion where people just didn't care. They had no sense of balance. And, you know, the crisis to me was um i mean it was time to self reflect because like i said i could you know i had come from academics i had been a, a physicist 
prior to that. And I could always make the argument that what I was doing was no worse than physics because it was benign, you know, at least, you know, um, it was, in many ways, theoretical physics is a very selfish pursuit. You're not doing anything, you know, you're not providing anybody anything. <laughs> um, and, you know, that you're sounding really smart, um, but yeah, you're not. I mean, you're doing nothing. Come on, let's be honest. <laughs> I mean, you know, you haven't changed the world one iota. Um, and that's cool. That's fine. Um, I could argue that about finance, too. But after the crisis, I realized, no, it wasn't benign. We had really done some bad things. And what frustrated me was people doubled down. I expect other people to have had the same epiphany, the same like, wow, boy, we messed that one up. What should we do? No, it was actually the opposite. It was, no, the government messed it up. So only a month after we were bailed out by the government, I'll never forget, I was hanging out with some acquaintances, I won't say who, um, on the trading floor. And we had we'd just been bailed out. We had just been bailed out. And Obama came on, president-elect, I think it was at that time, maybe, maybe not, um, came on to give a speech. And he gave some benign comments that were broadcast um, on the trading floor, on the, on the TVs, about how bankers need to, need, to, need to... Stop being fat cats, I think was yeah, the phrase yeah, you use sometimes, yeah. things like that. And the, uh, all of a sudden, everybody around me drove, just broke out in a polemic against Obama, you know, and, you know, the fat pensions of of uh, teachers, you know, teachers only have to work 20 years and then afterwards they're going to have all these big fat pensions, including a person who had just gotten a um, – who had signed on with a guarantee and who had not – that guarantee would not have been committed unless Obama had bailed us out. Uh -huh. You know, he was – he um, was uh, railing against um, teachers' pensions and, you know, a policeman only has to work 20 years and then they – you should see what firemen have to do, you know, that sort of – if, it, if we hadn't lent money to all these poor people, it would have been fine. It was pretty agree, you know, pretty pretty rough stuff. Are they calling Obama like a communist and things like that? Um, you know, I I supported Obama. I voted for him. Um, and there were times I would come, you know, I'd come to my desk and there were crude things written on my desk. So, you know, no, no, nothing racial. Um, I never went into that lanes, but you know, basically. Enjoy your communism now, type things like comments were written while you were away by some of your colleagues because yes, they knew it, that you had. Yeah, someone had taken. Obama. Yeah, but it, that was kind of you know, people. Game people. You know, that's not to say that basically I was targeted. We all we all played a pretty rough game, <laughs> um, but it's just to say that that's that's when you target Obama, he was a socialist communist. You know, and that point about oh, it was the people who bought houses they couldn't afford. It was their fault. Right. Think, you know, there's a there's a you know if there's one intellectual movement that has really infected Wall Street in a negative way is libertarianism, <laughs> which is very self-serving. Um, but it's kind of that, you know, if there only had been less regs, it would have been all fine. And again, it's not surprising that, you know, that I rail on that because of my whole idea that the social matters. Libertarians don't believe the social matters at all. But, you know, you, you, you were talking about self-worth. Absolutely everybody on Wall Street, including myself, has a spreadsheet, which is our self-worth. And it's a number, and they look at it every once in a while, and that's how that's how they measure themselves. I want to share briefly uh, my own, also very brief experience. Um, I worked for J.P. Morgan in the private bank for three years right after college. This was o two to o five, and occasionally uh, I would go around the bank and I would ask a little bit about the ethical, the moral dimension of what it was that we did, and essentially what we did was try to make rich people richer. Okay. I mean, I'm putting it quite crudely, but that's kind of what a private bank does. And nobody really wanted to engage that question 
very diligently, right? And I don't think it's because they were bad people, okay? These were people that, you know, they had families, they were good family people, uh, they were, you know, decent drinking buddies and things like that. I mean, I enjoyed their company, but there was a particular myopia when it came to discussing their work, right? I, I can't quite explain it. I can't quite elaborate on that too much. It was just something kind of odd that I noticed while I was there and certainly contributed to my leaving. I don't think that's because of any sort of particular moral superiority on my part. It was just kind of a quirk, right? And I don't know if this applies to all of us, right? So you know, maybe the three of us wouldn't like it so much. Uh, when somebody accuses journalism of having fallen down on the job on something, we might try to rationalize it away, even when it's true, because we're involved there. And I guess I'm wondering if Wall Street just kind of fell victim to the same thing that a lot of people do because of their human biases, right? Only in this case, the results were so destructive that it was a question that, you know, a question of whether or not what they were doing was benign was something that everybody had to face, but they still didn't want to. I, I've said this before and I'll say it again, which is I think of all – this is my, like my fourth industry at this point. Wall Street is the industry with the collection of the smartest and the most curious people. Um, they're, they're, they're immensely talented um, and they're immensely curious. Uh, at least traders are. You can talk about anything and they want to know and they're really – they're not ideological at least when it comes to the markets. They're willing to, to, to look at the facts and change and be wrong because you know, as a trader, a successful trader, you can't be rigid. You just can't. What the problem I found was I, I call them front row kids. They've been in the front row of everything their entire life. And they've had to get to, to, to get to the where they've been. They've had to, you know, like going back to the early conversation about education, they've had to buy into the system, not only buy into it, game it to get to the very top. And it's created people who aren't very self-reflective necessarily because they're, 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 so, they're so bought into the system and so bought into the gaming the system, getting to the top that sometimes they forget why they've gotten there. Another thing I noticed, and this is how the culture changed in Wall Street, when I got there, a lot of people had some very esoteric backgrounds. You know, the guy who ran mortgages was a former elevator operator, you know, a repairman. Um, there was a jazz, you know, my, my boss had been a minor league player from, in, you know, from a junior college in, 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 um, in Canada. I had another boss who was a jazz musician, failed jazz musician. Well, he was a really good jazz musician, but, you know, it was an eclectic bunch who just happened to have street smarts. Um, by the end, it was just a uniform, a uniform mass of Ivy League educated kids who had done a month in Africa to get their resume better. It was just one front row kid after another, and they're really talented. Don't get me wrong. I mean, these kids can, can you know, can build anything. And one of my biggest regrets, my biggest frustrations about Wall Street is not. You know, people say, are you angry at Wall Street? No, what I'm angry at is those people who work on Wall Street, if their talents were applied to other things, could do such amazing things. They're so talented. And when I'm working with nonprofits, nothing wrong with nonprofits, but you just don't have the talent that you have necessarily. There's some wonderful people in nonprofits, but if you had two or three Wall Street people who would just put their energies, their Excel spreadsheet skills, their, their just immense creativity to, to doing something else, it could really make a big difference. I just wanted to add to something that um, that you had said about the lack of self-awareness. I think that's very true, but I don't know if I came just came along later um, in the game, but a lot of people that I talk to t do tend to have some, maybe it's an acquired layer of uh, self-awareness, but they will make comments like, oh, you know, here I am saving the world and, 
And, you know, maybe they identify me as someone who would, you know, respond positively to that. Maybe they're knowing their audience. But um, but I and maybe it's a post-crisis phenomenon that they were saying, you know, I am protecting my nest. I'm, I'm doing what's right for my family, for my little world. And it, you know, the to Cardiff's point, the the responsibility sort of falls between the cracks, right? That, you know, I think we saw this in a lot of the, the crisis and the aftermath examining what happened, just like the buck just never stopped. So because, you know, oh, it was the bank's fault. Oh, it was the poor people's fault. Oh, it was regulators' fault. Everyone, you know, found a place to put the blame. And certainly there were, is, there was a plenty to go around. But it seems like after the crisis, people realized that it was the kind of aggregated mechanics of everything that failed and and sort of acknowledged a little bit of that personal culpability for that. I think it's coming out a lot more now. And I, and I think, again, I think, like I said, I think traders and finance people are extraordinarily open-minded um, when it comes to issues other than their own taxes. <laughs> but um, otherwise, you know, and, I, and so... And I think the humility you said is creeping in because the bank, banking job is not a good job right now in terms of what it used relative to what it used to be. Yeah, the the systemic angle here I think is really intriguing and one that I'm also a little bit ambivalent about. So on the one hand, if you buy into the idea, and I think all three of us do, that there is something unique about finance that requires a certain amount of regulation, right? It's propensity for bubbles, the idea that when it starts to create these money-like products, the possibility for a run on a bank or on a shadow bank exists, that it needs a certain amount of oversight. If you believe that, then it also means that you have to get the incentive scheme right. And if you do that right, then the rest of it should take care of itself. So obviously, the allure of Wall Street, in addition to a certain amount of gold-plated respectability, was always the money, right? In other words, it paid a lot. If you regulate it in such a way as to make it safer, you shrink the profits a little bit, then maybe you won't have the kind of destructive behavior. And you also want to attract the kind of people who would eventually engage in that kind of destructive behavior. On the other hand, right, you also, I think, want good people in finance. It is an important industry. It maybe got too important. Well, not maybe. It definitely got too important in the years before the crisis, in the decades before the crisis. But it matters, and you don't want it to become something that's so toxic that nobody wants to work there, right? I don't really know how to reconcile those two things, but maybe you guys can help me out. <laughs> if there's one solution I think there is, it's it's just you have to go back having compensation structure to be like partnerships. My, my favorite piece I ever wrote was called Why It's Smart to Be Reckless on Wall Street. It was smart. It, if, if you wanted to game the system because of the way the compensation structure was, you should be taking reckless risk. It paid you to do so. One of the dirty secrets of Wall Street is the people who lost the most money in the crisis personally got paid the best. So the people who blew up Citibank, the people who blew up Lehman personally did very well. So Citibank had 200,000 people working for it. The number of people who actually are responsible for it blowing up are probably about 1,000 people. Right. People need to get paid in partnership type. I mean, if the firm goes down, they lose. And they need the old Goldman, Goldman Sachs model of you get paid in shares of your company that you can't touch for 20 years and you get a decent salary. But other than that, no. And then that becomes – that changes the incentive structure remarkably, I think. And we are out of time, but we're not going to let anybody go until we have done our long-form recommendations. Uh, Chris, you're our guest. Uh, what do you got? It's relatively obscure. Um, given my work on um, addiction, 
um, I've been studying suicide because addiction and suicide are um, on the same continuum. Addiction is a form of suicide. Suicide is extreme addiction. And so I started reading On Suicide by Durkheim. It's uh, 1880. Um, he's basically the founder of sociology. And in the book, um, amongst his other books, he introduced the concept of anime, which has a lot to do with what I've been doing now in poverty. Anime is the sense of not belonging, um, the sense of not being part of the community. And his study or his book on suicide says basically people who suffer from too much anime, a sense of not belonging, are people who kill themselves. Okay. Wow. Wow. Sorry. No, that's <laughs> – hey. <laughs> sounds like a That's powerful word negative. tough to follow up um so mine is a book by i'm gonna butcher the pronunciation but paul Beatty. it's the sellout and it's about a guy from a community in los angeles dickens which had been a city and then was sort of you know lost its charter kind of thing and it's about him navigating race and politics and um he sort of runs afoul of modern law i guess and has to basically have his uh, his case taken at the supreme court and it's just a really fascinating and hilariously written uh just incredibly intelligent telling of this ridiculous tale so excellent and mine is the opening monologue uh by dan savage the writer and podcast host uh he's a relationship advice columnist but his podcast, Savage Lovecast, is sort of a perennial recommendation of mine. But this week he gives a really moving monologue about the tragic events in Orlando from the weekend. So definitely check that out. And that is all the time we have for today's show. Thanks, guys. This was fun. Hope you Thank enjoyed you very this. very much. Thank you for having me on. You can call us at 917-551-5012 to give us feedback. That is a U.S. number for our overseas listeners. The country code is plus one. You can email us at alphachat at ft.com. On Twitter, I'm at Cardiff Garcia. Mary is at M like Mary, D like Dryden, C like child, at MDC. And Chris is at Chris Arnod. There's an underscore in between the two names, Chris underscore Arnod. Rank the show, leave a review on iTunes. It really does help people find us. Thanks as always to the amazing Amy Keene, producer and editor of this show. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.